Today's episode contains disturbing descriptions from mass shooters' diaries that contain strong language, violent imagery, and distressing themes. Please use discretion before listening. All names of mass shooter perpetrators, with the exception of the Cayman band shooting, have been withheld to prevent notoriety. If you believe there to be a possible threat of a shooter, call the FBI tip hotline at 1-800-CALL-FBI or your local authorities. If you or someone you know is considering harming themselves or others, call 1-800-273-8255. Today's episode is taken from articles published in the Winfield Courier in 1903. On a late summer evening, at a concert in the middle of town with thousands of people congregating and peaceably laughing and dancing, a man pulls a gun out and begins to shoot indiscriminately into the crowd. Tell me, what's more distressing? The fact that you aren't surprised with that narrative, or the fact that you don't even know what mass shooting I'm talking about? You're probably thinking about the 2017 Las Vegas shooting, but maybe I'm talking about the 2018 Birmingham, Alabama one. Or maybe it's the 2015 Paris concert. Or take it farther back to the 2004 Columbus, Ohio shooting. Or maybe the one just a month and a half ago in Miami. Or the dozens of other shootings or near shootings that can't make it into the headlines because there's always a bigger body count of a story to be found. Right now, there's two reactions you should have. One is of sadness, of heartbreak, of tragedy, of how can this continue happening? And the other is a fury. How can this continue happening? I don't think there's anyone who cares about humanity that doesn't want to solve the problem of gun violence in America. It's an issue I'm passionate about, precisely because I've seen what gun violence can do to friends, to a community. But the two questions we ask, the two questions that divide us, are, can we solve gun violence? And if so, how can we solve gun violence? The first question has a simple answer. No. No, we can't solve gun violence. When the first Chinese man over 800 years ago threw scraps of metal into a bamboo tube and ignited the gunpowder within, we let loose a genie we can't put back into the bottle. You can't uninvent an invention. Gun violence is here to stay. But the sure as hell doesn't mean we can't try. Because if we don't try to address the problem, we're saying we're fine with the problem. And I'm going to guess you're not fine with the problem. A man pulls a gun at a concert on you or your family, no matter how prepared you are, no matter how close the police are, no matter how well-armed you are, you're not going to be fine. The action by simple existence begs a response. So the real question is, how can we solve gun violence? And typically, this question is succeeded with a conditional statement. How can we solve gun violence? without infringing on the Second Amendment? How can we solve gun violence and continue to defend against criminals or the tyrannical government? How can we solve gun violence when so much money is being poured into lobbying from special interest groups? If your answer is to throw up your hands and say, it's impossible, there's too many factors, really what you're just saying is, it's too hard. It's too painful. It's not worth my time, money, or freedom. Fact check. 
Saying it's too hard is an easy way of saying nothing is worth doing if I think it's too small a chance of success. Saying it's too painful is really saying the path of least resistance is greater than any reward can cost. Saying it's not worth it is really saying I know that it's worth it, it's just not worth it to me. Look, I'll be upfront. I'm not here to offer a solution. I'm not going to offer answers. Anybody who tries to hand you that is trying to sell you something. They want something from you. A donation, an endorsement, a vote. History doesn't offer us solutions. It offers us direction. It offers us horizons. It offers us warnings. It offers us insights. A fix is short-term. It lasts as long as it takes for people to figure out how to break it. Fixes don't last. Direction is hard work. It takes time. It's not perfect, but it improves lives for the better. History can teach us why mass shootings occur and what to do about them. On August 14, 1903, a man stepped into a street filled with thousands of concert goers and took aim. Nine shots followed. That tragedy gave us direction. A direction that can help us begin to solve the problem of gun violence. I'm Trevor Rhodes, and this is High Crimes in History. On Friday, August 14, 1903, the Kamen Military Band set up for its weekly concert in Winfield, Kansas. Contrary to its name, the band was a community band originally formed in 1889 as Canton's Dozen. By 1903, it had 20 brass and drummer players, all of them young adult men. It had changed its name when W.H. Kamen, a professor at the Winfield College of Music, had come on as director. They played local gigs around the Winfield area, and people came out from all around to hear them play. It was a major weekly event during the summer. The county fair was weeks away, and there was little else to do. On the 14th, they set up shop at the corner of 9th Avenue and Main Street, their typical spot. It was a focal point for people to shop in the local stores and bring the town revenue, as well as serve as entertainment. The stage took up the entirety of the intersection, and soon the streets became packed with a crowd numbering in the thousands. Newspapers reported it as high as 5,000 people. For reference, the town only numbered 5,500. As the evening went on, the crowd showed no sign of dispersing. Everyone was having fun. At 9.15, the band called for an intermission. A group of young boys moved away from the bandstand, and they were milling about when they noticed a man striding through an alley off of West 9th Avenue. He wore a buckskin hunting coat, a belt around the waist with pouches for shotgun shells inside. He carried a double-barreled shotgun. He strode towards the boys and remarked to them, quote, I'm going to do some tall shooting, son. You had better run, as I have no desire to hurt you. End quote. They didn't. They watched him, curious, as he continued striding to the mouth of an alley until he stopped at an express wagon, a small wagon like a red flyer, and uncovered it. Within it lay shells, cartridges for a revolver, and gunpowder. At 45 yards from the stage, he stopped. He muttered, I wonder if I can get Kamen. He dropped to one knee. The boys scattered. The man pointed his shotgun at the stage and shouted, I'll kill every one of you! And then he fired. What makes a mass shooting? 
If it was as simple as the shooting of many people, we'd chalk up every battle with firearms as a mass shooting. Obviously, that's not the case. So we have criteria in our cultural zeitgeist. We know a mass shooting when we see one. The goal of a mass shooting is to kill people with firearms. That's obvious. It seems simple on the surface. But do we include gang violence? War violence? Terrorism? Probably not. Those events have a particular motivation that involves groups that often devolve into violence, or like an ethnic or religious ideology. And that narrows our definition quite a bit. But then how many people have to be murdered? In 2015, Congress defined a mass shooting as a, quote, multiple homicide incident in which four or more victims are murdered with firearms within one event and in one or more locations in close proximity, end quote. I think there's room to grow there. I mean, if three die but the perpetrator attempted to kill more, is that just a triple homicide? Is that an attempted mass shooting? But that's kind of getting in the weeds. Well, let's just stick with that definition. What then would be the first American mass shooting? A lot of people might point out something like the Mountain Meadows Massacre in 1857, in which over 100 pioneers were murdered in southern Utah by a Latter-day Saint militia and Native Americans. But this was perpetrated by multiple militia members, somewhere between four to nine, depending on whether you include those who were unindicted. And that seems to be jarring because typically when we talk about mass shootings, we normally don't mean from one group to another. We mean by a lone gunman against a much larger group. Then it might be someone like Jim Jumper, who in 1889 in Florida killed several Seminole Indians for reasons unknown. He wanted to marry the daughter of one of the Seminoles, but they refused him. He also may have been worried about being killed by the Seminoles and may have had uh, delirium from an infection. Another contender might be Charles Robert, who in 1900 in the city of New Orleans killed an officer of the law after being approached. He killed multiple other officers and anyone else who came near his house. He was eventually shot, and the shooting sparked mass race riots. And probably most chilling, an unknown man shot up the New Zion Schoolhouse for African Americans in 1891 in Liberty, Mississippi. Fourteen were injured, although none died. But these and other incidents were muddled. There are often situations that spiral out of control, almost like an ad hoc suicide by cop or by Native American. Others, like the New Zion shooting, were motivated by racial violence and terrorism in the South. They don't hinge on the major psychoanalytical cruxes of mass shootings. Laura E. Hamlet published a dissertation for Walden University on the psycholinguistic themes in mass murder manifestos. She stated, quote, Six research questions aligned with six psycholinguistic themes. Ego survival and revenge. Persecution. Envy. Obliteration. Nihilism. Entitlement. And heroic revenge fantasy. End quote. In 1903, for the first time, America experienced a true mass shooter a man who exhibited all of these traits in a single terrible act, and a single terrible man. That man was Gilbert Twiggs. Twiggs was born in the late 1860s in Flintstone, Maryland. He moved in with his uncle Argyll and Aunt Barbara to Winfield in the late 1880s. He first worked as a miller in the town of nearby Burden, and then at the Baden Produce Company in Winfield. He was described by the Winfield Courier as, quote, smooth-faced, rather handsome, young man, end quote. He was above average in education and ability, a, quote, bright young man of good character and attainments, end quote. His prospects seemed to be looking up when he proposed marriage to local Jesse Hamilton in 1894. For some unknown reason, she broke it off. Soon after, he joined the army and then the 8th Cavalry, leaving Winfield for Huntville, Alabama. 
He later switched to the 17-company Signal Corps, where he was assigned as a telephone operator. In December of 1898, he shipped out to the Philippines to fight in the Spanish-American War. His enlistment expired the next year without him seeing combat, and he eagerly renewed it for a second deployment. By the time he was back in the Philippines in July of 1899, the war was over, but an insurrection had started between the Filipinos and the Americans. He was part of a bloody war in the jungle that eventually claimed over 4,200 American lives and over 220,000 Filipinos. He had a strained relationship with an army officer and surgeon there, although we aren't sure what. It was important enough that he mentioned it in his final letter. But by the time he arrived back in Winfield in 1902, he was a sergeant and was discharged for excellent service. He moved to Montana working as a miller for a while, and he enjoyed the work, but wrote to his former employer and friend Chance Wells back in Winfield, quote, Well, Chance, I often think of the old days gone by when we used to have so much fun together in our little crowd. Those were the happiest days of my life, and it would have done so much better for me if I had gotten married and settled down as you have done. I have no doubt but what you are very happy, while I am not. End quote. One of the common threads that connects all mass shooters is instability. Maybe it's psychological instability. The Seattle Pacific University shooter in 2014 wrote in his diary, quote, Sometime by the end of this week, I will express how I really feel about humanity, America, and itself. Two and a half years in psychotherapy and two years in psychiatry didn't help. I had a high level of stress that made me a little crazy and not myself. Ever since I took the medication, I became more calm, more patient, and more confident. If my routines, my belongings, and if my life was respected, I wouldn't be so goddamn miserable. End quote. He goes on to talk about his OCD and depressive disorders, blaming the people around him for his own unhappiness. And this is just one of those realizations that is simply well-researched. Many mass shooters have some sort of history of mental illness, but mass shooters aren't strictly the mentally ill. Research has swung between 30 to 60% of mass shooters as having a history of mental disorders. Possibly up to two-thirds have never been seen by a mental health professional. But that still leaves 40 to 70% of shooters unaccounted for. Perhaps it could also be emotional instability. Take the YouTube headquarters shooting in 2018, where the shooter injured three before killing herself. She blamed her grief and frustration on the demonetization of her channel, not realizing that the important factor there, as simple as it sounds, was that she was grieving. She was in a state of instability caused by an emotional change. And then, of course, there's the fact that Twigs was male. 97% of all mass shooters are male. Researchers continue to cite the fact that males are more aggressive as part of the reason that they are the main perpetrators of shootings, and aggression follows emotional instability. On its surface, it's pretty simple. People don't commit to mass shooting because they're stable, they do it because they're unstable. No duh, you're probably saying, Captain Obvious over here. Okay, then why do we dismiss mass shootings as the actions of a crazed individual? If it's instability that's the problem, why aren't we talking about how to build stability in the lives that were obviously unstable when they committed the actions? On the surface, Twig seems happy about those around him, but obviously he wasn't. Stuff had happened in the Philippines. It was a brutal war, and we know that often the strain of war can lead to mental illness. Or perhaps it was the breakup with his girlfriend eight or nine years ago, something he cites at the end of his final letter. Maybe it was when he tried to apply for his job back at Baden Mills in Winfield and was denied it for unknown reasons. Or when he tried to move back to Winfield in the summer of 1903, looking for more work and could not find any. Or maybe it was the people in his life, 
people like W.H. Kamen, the band leader who held a full-time job at the telephone company he applied at, or the husband of Jesse Hamilton, the woman he courted back in 1894. We don't know if it was one factor or a combination of factors, genetics, and conditions. One thing is certain. Twiggs was not a stable man by the time he entered the general goods store in Winfield and Miller on Saturday, August 1st, 1903, two weeks before the mass shooting, to buy a shotgun. The Winfield Courier writes, quote, Twiggs went into the store Saturday, August 1st, and after a careful selection, purchased a 12-bore double-barreled gun. Of course, there was nothing unusual about the purchase of the gun, but when he went to select some ammunition, he aroused the curiosity of W.D. Winfield, who was standing close by and watching the sale. What are you going to do with that kind of shell? asked Mr. Winfield, to which Twiggs replied that he had not yet decided. Twiggs bought two boxes of shells loaded with three and a quarter drams of semi-smokeless powder and ten number five buckshot each. He had not yet decided was an answer that can now be construed as suggestive and full of poisonous meaning, but at the time, it went by almost unnoticed. End quote. Twiggs also procured a cheap 32 caliber Harrington and Richard revolver somewhere along the way as well. Residents of Winfield noticed him loitering in the parks, watching people move to and fro, and they found it strange. He also took money from his local banks, $600 to be paid to his brothers in Pennsylvania in two installments. The evening of the shooting, he visited Uncle Argyle's house at around 7 in the evening. He was in his buckskin coat and carrying his shotgun. Argyle said nothing of it. He believed Gilbert had been out hunting that day and was retiring. Gilbert only stayed for a few minutes before leaving. His uncle thought Gilbert had been acting strange for a while, a little off his mind. At the coroner's inquest, he testified, quote, Had he noticed first a few days ago, he could not remember just when. He was first attracted to it by Gilbert's telling him that he had gone back on him, that the public was all against him, and had it in for him, that he had been doped at his boarding place at Great Falls by his enemies, and forced to give up a position that was paying him $100 to $120 a month. He seemed very much dissatisfied, but could give no reason for it. He talked a great deal about people being after him. He also talked about going back east to visit his relatives. His uncle advised him to do this, and Gilbert did soon. He thought this was about February of 1903. Gilbert said on his return that even his brother had gone back on him and was against them. End quote. One of the major traits of mass shooters is a philosophy of nihilism and an ego survival coupled with revenge. In other words, it's a belief that life is futile, a meaningless existence, and that seeking revenge is a way of broadcasting one's pain. Mass shootings are perpetrated by people who want to lash out and give a voice to their own concerns, their own pain, and almost universally, those concerns are wrongs committed against themselves by people of the public. Take the most famous mass shooting ever, Columbine, in 1999. Read the perpetrator's diaries, and it immediately becomes clear that they committed their actions against the world itself, even if they targeted particular individuals within it. This is just one excerpt taken from one of their diaries. Quote, if you recall your history, the Nazis came up with a final solution to the Jewish problem. Kill them all. Well, in case you haven't figured it out yet, I say, kill mankind. No one should survive. We all live in lies. People are saying that they want to live in a perfect society. Well, utopia doesn't exist. It is human to have flaws. You know what? Fuck it. Why should I have to explain myself to you survivors when half of the shit I say, you shitheads won't understand? And if you can, then whoopty fucking do. That just means you have something to say as my reason for killing. 
and the majority of the audience won't even understand my motives either. They'll say, ah, he's crazy, he's insane, oh well, I wonder if the Bulls won. You see, it's fucking worthless. All of you fuckers should die. Die! What the fuck is the point if only some people see what I am saying? There will always be the ones who don't, ones that are too dumb, or naive, or ignorant, or just plain retarded. If I can't pound it into every single person's head, then it is pointless. Fuck mercy, fuck justice, fuck morals, fuck civilized, fuck rules, fuck laws. End quote. To summarize his worldview, the world's an awful place. So I'm going to make it an awful place for the world. And at the end of it, I don't want to be in it. And that's the same mentality Gilbert Twiggs had. Shortly after 9.15pm, Twiggs began to fire into the crowd. The Winfield Courier described the full event. The following is constructed from the several articles written in the Winfield Courier about the shooting, with a few grammatical and organizational changes made. Quote, Twig lay on his face on the sidewalk about 30 feet west of Maine on 9th and emptied eight shots into the mass of humanity before him. At the first shot fired, Clyde Wagoner's horn was shattered and at the next, Ree Oliver fell from his chair on the bandstand. Benedict Scalecki Jr. was sitting in a bug in front of the famous shoe shop when the first shot was fired. He was listening to the band. He heard a shot fired and saw a man drop out of a buggy. He turned around west in his buggy and saw the flash as the second shot was fired. He then knew something was up and turned his horse around to get out of the way as soon as possible. As he turned it, he noticed that the man shooting had on a duck coat and striped shirt. There was all confusion as the first warning shot rang out, and as the smoke cleared, helping sympathizing hands, at the same time being ignorant to the cause of the shot, hurried to a nearby physician's office with trap drummer Ree Oliver, who no doubt got the shot, which it seems it was intended for bandmaster W.H. Cammon. Twig chose the one evening of each week when most people congregate in a central place. He chose the spot from which to fire with the skill of a general. He commenced firing at a range of about 125 feet from the bandstand. He dropped on one knee at each fire, then retreated backward while reloading, then dropped on his knee again and fired. These are the skirmish line tactics of the army and give a level body line to the volley. The employment of the tactics is due to the terrible execution of his volleys. He remembered his training and shot low. Following the first shot and at the sight of the band boys falling, the crowd made a wild rush towards the bandstand. Then, as the lead was poured down the street in broadsides of regular intervals, the crowd quickly scattered until, in a moment, the street was deserted by all but the dead and wounded. Sterling Race was killed. Elmer Farnsworth, who is not expected to live, and J.B. Story, the grocer, who was severely injured, are all members of the local IOOF and faced death on the stairway as they came out of the lodge room, almost over the position held by the murderer. From this, I deduce that these three men came down the stairs from the lodge hall and were shot as they left the building. The firing covered about three or four minutes, but to those in the immediate vicinity, it seemed like almost an hour. It would beg fancy to attempt to describe the suffering of the injured and the sight of prominent young businessmen dying in pools of their own blood made strong men turn aside their heads. A handful of brains on the pavement in front of the Craig bookstore with young Dawson Tilliston, later corrected to Dawson Billiter, laying within a few feet in a pool of his own blood, is a representative picture of the vengeance meted out to an innocent public by the demented man. Link Smith was sitting on the southwest corner of Manning Street and Ninth Avenue when he heard the first shot, and he ran upstairs to ask where the firing was going on and met his aunt, Mrs. Milligan, in the middle of the street and asked her what was wrong. She did not know. Mrs. Milligan said her attention was attracted by the first shot. She could not see who was doing the shooting, but could see the flashes of the gun. He seemed to be standing near the walk, 
just opposite the alley between the Swartz Lumber Company's yard and Nichols' hide shop. She thought eight shots were fired. He seemed to fire three shots right at the sidewalk and retreated to the alley. She thought when she saw him, he was standing erect when firing. Smith ran over to where his uncle was standing in the door of the famous shoe shop. Twig then stepped out and deliberately shot at him, the bullets going through his coat sleeve. He asked his uncle for a gun to shoot the man, but his uncle told him not to do it. John Harrington was attracted by the shooting and could see the flashes of the gun. The man shooting stood about 20 feet east of the alley in front of Reed's paint shop. It seemed to him that the man would shoot twice, then step backwards and he reloaded the gun. There were, in all, eight shots fired from this gun. There was one shot from a revolver from the west side of the building where he was on the south side of 9th Avenue. He did not know who fired this shot or in what direction it was fired. Twig's last two shots were fired from the alley as he leaned around the corner. They were fired high, but all his other shots were fired low. George Nichols, the night's watch, was standing by Dauber's store when the first shot was fired. He ran north to 9th Avenue where the second two shots were fired. He secured his Winchester and ran down the alley as he had been told the shots were being fired from there. Cal Ferguson was in his room in the Ferguson block when the first shot was fired. He got his revolver and went out onto the street, but learning that the shooting was being done at long range, went back and got a shotgun. Nichols went on until he saw Twig leaning against a telegraph pole. He heard one shot after he went into the alley, but before he saw Twig. It was a much lighter shot than the others, and then he heard no other light shots. He heard nine shots in all. When he first saw Twig, he was leaning towards the east. He stopped about 40 steps from him and watched him until he saw him fall and heard him groan very heavily. He watched him then for a couple minutes. He then went back to get his dark lantern and then met Mr. Ferguson and then went north to the pharmacy, through the store, and into the alley towards the place where Twigs had been shooting. Link Smith had ran upstairs into the rooms occupied by the Swartz family from where he heard the last shot, a smuggled, smothering report. He then ran downstairs and towards Main Street and about halfway between Craig's back door and the alley he met George Nichols and Cal Ferguson, who were each carrying guns. He asked Cal for his gun, but he would not give it to him. He then went around the alley with them. Twiggs was crouched on his hands and knees with his head on an iron pile near where the alley opens onto 9th Avenue. He saw the wound in Twig's head. Twig was then breathing very heavily. They found a revolver by his side, some empty shells, cartridges, and a few loaded shells in a small tin wagon nearby, which had been left at Nichols by some lad who had sold iron there during the day. The shotgun was in Twig's arms. There's no shells except those in and near the wagon. He was then helped to carry Twigs down 9th Avenue to the bandstand where he tried to call a doctor but was unable to find one. Still believing himself innocent and the victim of plotting enemies, Twig took his own life rather than be taken alive. End quote. Mass shooters have a pseudo-commando mindset. Pseudo-commando is a forensic psychiatry term that was coined to describe mass murderers who plan their attack ahead of time, who stockpile weapons and ammunition, and carry out a commando attack. The Las Vegas shooter, for example, prepared for over a week at the very least, checking into two different rooms and stockpiling 24 weapons, 14 with 100-round magazines and bump stocks. He set up do-not-disturb signs on the room and set up a hidden surveillance camera to monitor the hallways so he knew when the police would show. He calculated the distance, wind, and trajectory from 32 floors up onto the concert-goers who were going to be the victims. Mass shooters train before they perpetrate the act. The Virginia Tech shooter purportedly trained at the target range by placing targets on the ground and walking past them, shooting at them sequentially as they lay down to simulate walking through a classroom 
engaged in a duck and cover drill. The Parkland shooter planned by waiting until the bell for dismissal had almost rang, and then he pulled the fire alarm. Lockdowns in the event of a shooting required school officials to barricade, but a fire alarm would mask the gunshots, add to the confusion, and all of this right when students and teachers would be itching to let out for the day. He planned it so that there would be no empty hallways. And above all, shooters planned for the biggest body count possible. The bump stocks attached to the AR-15s in the Las Vegas shootings simulated automatic fire. In 10 minutes, the perpetrator had fired 1,100 rounds. At Columbine, both attackers planted bombs in the cafeteria with the intention of killing hundreds, then mowing down the victims as they evacuated outside. Thankfully, the bombs did not go off as planned, but it goes to show that shooters intend to kill as many people as possible to make as big of an impact as possible. And tragically, it's effective. At Las Vegas, 59 people were killed, 422 injured from gunshot wounds, and 481 from the ensuing stampede. At Parkland, 17 were killed and 17 injured. At Virginia Tech, 33 killed, 50 injured. At Columbine, 15 killed, 24 injured. Gilbert Twiggs planned for a high body count. He bought weapons that would create the highest body count available at the time. A shotgun with shells, each filled with 12 pellets, each the size of a pea. A double-barreled break action, not many shots compared to today, but easy to reload, and the widespread of each shot would hit as many people in the crowd as opposed to a bolt action that could only hit just one. He stockpiled his ammunition and planted it ahead of time by using a boy. He set himself up only 45 yards from the stage, meaning he was mere feet from the crowd itself. He intentionally set up in a dark alleyway. A man complained to the Daily Free Press the next morning, quote, If the city had been provided with electric lights, the murderer would have fired but two shots. The poorly lighted streets made the terrible deed possible. It's a shame Winfield doesn't have electric lights. End quote. Twig's army training taught him how to maximize his accuracy and reload time to buy time before law enforcement came. And when they did come, he ended his own life instead of facing a trial, cementing his injustice by ensuring he would never be able to be justly convicted. Twiggs died from his gunshot wound on the bandstand. Judging by his last words, his preparation, and his temperament, he had planned this from the beginning. But there is one final piece of the puzzle about a mass shooter. They're acting out a revenge fantasy. That's the fuel for these actions. They're often egotistical, narcissists, entitled. They thrive off their own intellect, knowing more than others. Often it's the belief that they know the true feelings of others, like in the case of the Seattle Pacific University shooting. Other times it's that they're superior in knowledge, or that they know the truth with a capital T, like the Parkland shooter claiming to be a targeted individual, basically the belief that they've been singled out by a major organization like a crime syndicate, or that they're being monitored or stalked, it's a conspiracy theory on the rise. But sometimes, it's simply the belief that they're intellectually superior. That they have knowledge everyone else doesn't. And that that knowledge allows them to go on a revenge fantasy for the ages. Take this one from one of Columbine Shooter's diaries. Quote, Here's something to chew on. Today I saw a program on the Discovery Channel about satellites and radar and aircraft and stuff. And at the end of the show, the narrator said something that made me think, damn, we're so advanced, we kick ass, America is awesome, we have so many things in our military, we would kick anyone's ass. For a minute, I actually had some pride in our nation. And then I realized, hey, this only is the good things that I'm seeing here. Only the pros, not the cons. 
But maybe that's what people see, only the pros. And that's why they're under control. But me, I see all. You can only blind me for so long. But alas, I have realized that yes, the human race is indeed doomed. It just needs a few kickstarts, like me. And hell, maybe even like blank. If they can wipe a few cities off the map, and even the fuckhead holding the map, then great. End quote. The shooters at Columbine didn't want to be known as a school shooting. They wanted to be the shooting. One of them stated in a video that he intended to inflict the most deaths in U.S. history. They wanted the whole world to see and know their actions. A mass shooter, more than anything, claims that life doesn't matter. But in reality, what they want is for their last action to matter forever. The next morning, police searched Gilbert's residence and found his last letter, and it reads like every mass shooter's manifesto. I'm going to read it in full. His last words to the world were, quote, Winfield, Kansas, August 1903. I would like to say to those who have interested themselves so much in my welfare, that seems to be the public in general, that I do not and most likely never will know the real cause of being treated in the manner that I have been treated. I do know that I have never killed any person, that I have never stolen anything, and that I have always been honest and never violated any laws of our country to my knowledge. These things I know to be true. Now the question arises in my mind as to the real cause of the trouble. Can it be that I have been followed up since I was suspected of something in Winfield over four years ago? Or can it be because of something that I might have said about having been shadowed? Or is it because of my girlfriend affair here some eight or nine years ago? I'm inclined to believe that it is the latter, and if so, it is certainly very unjust. If I was sure that it came from the girl affair, I would go into details and tell everything, but as I am not sure and have no way to find out, I'll keep it for her sake, what I have not already told to a friend of mine. Now, there is one thing that I have to regret, and that is because I did not settle this thing with Lieutenant Myron C. Bowdish and Contract Surgeon O. W. Woods while I was a patient in the Philippines. Then I could have gotten what was due me, and this thing would have been over long ago. I would have settled these things then and there, but lived in the hopes that there would be some end to the thing sometime, but it seems not. At least, there is no end in sight yet, and have no way of knowing that there ever will be. The past few years have been a long, long time for me. Of course, you people who have been deeply interested know the way that you have treated me. You know you have doped me until I was forced to give up about $100 a month in my position. You know that you drove me from place to place in the same manner and forced me to give up a neat little sum of my hard-earned money to railroad companies' money that I went through the danger of war and diseases, both in Cuba and in the Philippines, to get. You also know that you watched my mail, and after finding out my friends and correspondents, you told them some kind of story about me that caused every one of them to drop me and turn me down cold. Now, ladies and gentlemen, knowing this as you do, and as I do, do you think I will give up and sit down in a corner somewhere and hold my hands and do nothing? Nay, nay, Pauline, not I. I have given up positions, I have taken your dope, I have taken your insults, and I have done nothing. But you will find me then delivering the goods in the end. You should let this be a lesson to you in the future, and when you are about to make big things out of little ones, you should cough this up and look at it on both sides and be sure you are right right before you go ahead. You may think your theory is alright, but if common sense does not teach you, experience will. Your brain may be alright in quality, but there may be a chance for them to be lacking in quantity. I believe in this all. 
I have to say so. Adios. Signed, Gilbert. Gilbert Twiggs was an emotionally, possibly mentally unstable man. He felt entitled, targeted, and angry. He blamed the world, and he wanted the world to know it, and the world now knows it. We think of mass shootings as a recent invention by the media or proliferation of semi-automatic weapons. It's not. The Kamen Bayan massacre proves that to be false. That's not to say those aren't factors. Semi-automatic weapons with high-capacity magazines kill more people faster. It's simple as that. The media constantly replaying the events of a massacre gives shooters a platform that emboldens more potential shootings. It's simple as that. But Gilbert Twiggs used the tools he had to create the highest profile body count he could, and at the end of it, six people, including himself, were killed, and 25 were injured. At the dawn of the 20th century, that's a staggering number. But we often argue about minimizing casualties, and that's a discussion that needs to happen. Discussions about background checks, assault weapons, mental health law enforcement responses, the works. But really, the problem comes from within us. If we want to stop mass shootings, we need to figure out how to fix the problems inherent in humanity. And I know that sounds trite, sounds like high and mighty, I know it sounds like a fantasy. I know that it doesn't provide answers. But like I said at the top, history doesn't provide a fix, it provides direction. We need those short-term fixes, but they can't be our long-term solution. If we want to solve the problem of mass shootings, we need to figure out not just what made Gilbert Twiggs tick in 1903, but how we still haven't solved that problem since 1903. We need to start figuring out how to solve our sense of entitlement and pride. We need to figure out how to solve the anger and aggression we feel against our community and against ourselves. We need to destigmatize mental illness and find people help. We need to have fantasies of forgiveness, not fantasies of revenge. And I'm not sure if we can reach any of those goals, but they're the direction we need to head. Because it isn't going to take very long before we're hearing the very same narrative we've heard a hundred times before. The report from the Winfield Courier 116 years ago is the same report we've heard hundreds of times since. And if we don't start doing something about it, we're going to hear it for hundreds of times in the near future. High Crimes and History is produced, written, and edited by Trevor and Katie Rhodes. Music by Nick Wright. If you enjoy the show, please rate and review us on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. If you have recommendations for show topics or comments about the show, you can follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook, or find us at our website at highcrimesandhistory.com.